Yeah, we're off. We must be like, yeah, whole quarter off. Spencer here with Will and Michael bringing Hi. you Hello. your adagio for today. Today's episode, we're talking about class and income barriers to classical music, composition, and then probably more broadly in classical music. And maybe the, are the performing arts too, in general? Or uh, I did, I'll I let you steer the conversation. I overstepped my bounds. I didn't do the other performing arts because I don't recognize them as legitimate arts. <clears throat> Especially the ones that people refer to just as art, you know, like painting. Right. Fuck exactly. Those. Fuck those. Fuck those. You just said painting. So there's a descriptor. I know, but people usually just call that art. Oh. Yeah. Okay. They don't, yeah. If someone's calling music art, they're like, wow, it's so good. It's art. Oh, you're saying <laughs> that art is just always art, but then music has to be good to be art. Anyway, that's a yeah. whole nother week. Right choreograph my dick fuck face let me get back to the the script all right so this is scripted uh, i had a better flow when i was reading this um You're supposed to be off book <laughs> oh, i I, re- I can't get i can't get off book okay can you read <laughs> <laughs> well because there's an ipad I'm, I'm in front of spencer <laughs> with his lines in front of i'm kind of thrown off <laughs> oh my god this is when you read articles about inclusivity or statistics of who makes it into an orchestra or career or jobs, I mean, you're, you're starting with the end goals of someone's career. You're starting, you know, mid-career. How I want to start this is just looking at who gets to study music and what kind of background you have to be from to even have the opportunity to pick up an instrument. How old were you guys when you started music? In general? Yeah. Seven. Seven? It was five. Five? What did you guys start with? Uh, piano. Yeah. Piano. Yeah. Do you know how much you paid for lessons? Ooh, I have no idea. I didn't pay anything. <laughs> but, right, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I collected gum and gave it to the teacher. Do you accept, I had a ball do you accept of, bits of string? I had I had this like <laughs> I would Some I would gather like loose hair and ball it up and right. give it to he I don't know oh, he yeah. had a weird system. You, you grew up as a cat. Yeah. <laughs> I took lessons from <laughs> keyboard cat originally. <laughs> I was raised as a cat until I was thirteen. Uh, <laughs> I emancipated myself from my cat parents when I was fourteen. Got a special order from the judge. I got some human parents. <laughs> cat parents. Yeah. Uh, sorry. No, no. Uh, so I was, yeah, seven. I was just going to say, I, yeah, I started piano when yeah. I was eight. My grandma gave my mom money for six months worth of piano lessons. Oh, wow. And then when that ran out, I stopped taking piano. Were you not interested? I mean, I probably wasn't mature enough to do it. I was also working out of boring books. Maybe I wasn't I don't very know good how student. much money there was for lessons in my house, but like my parents were like rabidly after education and experience for stuff. So mm. they just like... Mm scrapped it together so that i could do it i don't know how much how much mine were but i know that my brothers didn't show interest so they didn't get lessons maybe this is off track or you're going to do it in a minute mm-hmm. when did you start <clears throat> doing composition or rather i guess like taking lessons or maybe getting instructed in composition stuff 
When I was 18. 18. 20, 21. Yeah, me too. 20. Yeah. It was okay. like the last year or two of my undergrad. That'll come back. Maybe we'll cycle back to that because I think I have an interesting point. To okay. It. Yeah. This is already interesting. I like it. It's about me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Ask <laughs> me you more you questions. Too, I guess. What's that? What? How much does it cost to study an instrument? How Let's, much do these rates? Yeah. If, how um, much it costs to, to take an instrument? Okay. Yeah. Um, so if you're taking lessons, if it's through a music school versus a private teacher, you know, a town music school, not like a college, but like through a Pleasantville music school or yeah. something, it'll be more because there's fees associated for the school because you're also getting like a curated set of teachers who are like, you have the schools backing that they're really good. Mm-hmm. I know when I took guitar lessons in this was in pretty rural New Hampshire 10 or 20 years ago. That was, I think like 30 bucks a lesson Hmm. for like 45 minutes or something like that. Okay. And when I was teaching at a music school, teaching guitar, I think I got 30 bucks a lesson, but I think some of those students, parents were paying like 80 bucks a lesson. Wow. Which was Hoboken, which is about as like bougie as it gets. Yeah. Believe it or not, make all the New Jersey jokes you want. Hoboken is bougie as fuck. Really? Yeah. Hoboken is very nice. It's, I pay less in Manhattan than we paid for rent in Hoboken. Jeez. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I, my last teacher before college, I was paying 50 an hour. How many years do you take that? Or what, what is that just per year? So if, if let's you say take... $50 and let's say you take two weeks off a, a year or let's say four. Let's say you take four. So that's 48 weeks times 50. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, $2,400 a year times. Are we going with like a conservatory training or are we going with? No, I mean, let's let's just say a student <clears throat> takes it from through grade school. Mm-hmm. Eight, let's say eight years times 2,400. Math, 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 math. Did you, you came up calculator. with that? If you type it in, you have to say it. Those are the rules. Oh, uh, $19,200. $19,200. Wow. That's a mid-sized Toyota. That is an amazing amount of money. But mm-hmm. even if it's just for one year, $2,400, 60% of Americans have less than $1,000 in their savings account. So, What's the percentage of Americans that live paycheck to paycheck? Well, right here, it's 100. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was going to fess up to that. but I, <laughs> I'm fine, Mom. <laughs> but the care packages are welcome. <laughs> right off the bat, you can say like half of the country is priced out of music lessons. At least. That doesn't even factor in, I mean. Trump's America. Trump's America. <laughs> uh, I mean. All, all those coal miners living in denial about whether they can afford piano lessons. Right. right. I mean, how many uh, people did you meet at Juilliard whose parents were coal miners? none yeah that's a whole that's part of what i was going to bring up is the absurd difference not just in music school but in certain like conservatory settings i'll talk about it in a bit before before we move on it's roughly two thousand dollars a year to study an instrument that doesn't include instrument rentals or accessories or material or buying an instrument repairs depending on like repairs it also determines what kind of instrument you're probably going to play because just in terms of instrument rental it's way cheaper to rent a, well a band instrument rather than a, like a st- orchestral string instrument to buy one of those forget about it totally different right and like then a $2000 violin is like garbage. a high school yeah. violin <laughs> and then mm. a like guitar comparatively very very cheap yeah. to play to rent or buy a guitar 
rock band instruments. I mean, for $2,000, you can buy any drum set you want. That's a lot of money. That's but also, lot. I mean, drum set, I would say, is actually one of the more prohibitive things because there's a lot of parts you need to buy. You have to be in a living situation that permits that, not yeah. only in terms of the sheer amount of space it takes up, but also in terms of if you live in an apartment, you can't. You just I, can't. I don't have any drum students who have acoustic drums, which is really unfortunate. But those sets, the synth sets, are also pretty expensive. They're expensive. And the cr- the cheap ones are, are terrible. But you can. The one thing about drums is you can take lessons and you don't get the same technique feedback. So you can only mm-hmm. get so far. But you can practice patterns on yourself and true. around. So like when I was first taking beginning drum lessons, I didn't have a set. But my teacher was like, it's okay. You can use the music room during off hours. But also when you go home, just like he showed me like different methods for practicing either on your body or on surfaces around you. But you don't get the same feel, but you can master the rudiments. Or not, you can't master your rudiments, excuse me. You can get a handle on patterns. Yeah. Coordination stuff. Coordination and and most of my rudiment work, even through college, was done on uh, a practice pad. Right, mm. you know, because it's all about rebound and, like, and that kind of stuff, right? Like, yeah, and, and, and coordination and and, yeah. and patterns. The other thing about drums is that you can buy it piece by piece, which is what I did when I was growing up. I that's mean, what I did. you have mm. one hundred and fifty bucks for a crash. That's a birthday, you know. Mm. Christmas, you get, get a the, ride. You, yeah, you get a ride. <laughs> you get the second rack. You can play top, jazz whatever. now, <laughs> right? <laughs> As opposed to you want to seriously start st- studying cello, like. 10,000 bucks. Mine was an engagement <laughs> present. <laughs> I have a cello. You have a lot of instruments. I do. I want you to play the mandolin sometime. I'm real bad. Uh, that's exactly why I want you to I have to play a lot it. of instruments no, I'm, I'm really bad at. But I have relatives who are extremely generous who have, have supported my ability to kind of take a rough look at something and be able to know where the notes are in a day and then not be able to play it well ever. <laughs> But they're really useful in doing very simple recordings and figuring out if something's playable. Anyway, mm-hmm. that's enough of that. We, we can get into yeah. a lot of rabbit holes with this, but things are there are decent, like, cheap instrument markets for getting started, but they're still prohibitively expensive in certain cases. Yeah, there's like the cello. I was actually looking into this myself because I wanted to learn cello, but you could apparently rent a cello for 35 bucks a month. And then like the first one is like with plus a hundred dollars for a deposit Mm -hmm. and then over so many years. So, but I'm sure it's not a very good cello. That's still, Oh, it adds. I mean like you pay until you own it basically. And that's like a long time. I did that with my first guitar. I did rent to you own. Like I think it was 30 bucks a month for like 10 months or something like that. Mm -hmm. And it was, I had it until like two years ago for 10 months. But then what I'm wondering is like, like you go to Chelsea Symphony and you see all these people and they all have multi-thousand dollar instruments. Like who ever has that much money to put down on, on an instrument <clears throat> unless you have parents who can just buy it outright? Well, see, this is an interesting thing. I, I know a few people, well, I know more than a few people who do are in that situation where, you know, a family member bought it outright and it's yeah. ridiculous. Um, I mean, good for them. God bless. But I know a few people who aren't from that kind of background at all. Something, you know, much more similar to myself, like middle income. What happened often is they were a student with a loner instrument or a beginner instrument, and they showed a lot of promise. And their teacher was, you know, friends with a big supporter of the arts. And they had happened to mention this great student who it was too bad that they didn't have a lot of opportunity. And this donor either already owned a like fabulous instrument 
they decided to donate it to this student so that they could get into conservatory or something. And I actually do know something. But again, to be in that kind of situation, you need to be taking lessons with a teacher with those kinds of connections, which Mm -hmm. takes the already exorbitant lesson fee that we talked about before. Multiply that by like five, ten, like a lot. Right. It must cost a ton. I mean, I know I had when I first started taking composition lessons with, you know, very high caliber people i had some sticker shock about the cost of lessons it was yeah intense like it's not uncommon it to looks find... like college credit money mm-hmm. you know there are teachers in the city who charge i've heard of as as high as 250 mm-hmm. for serious oh lessons. we're thinking about the same person i know that number oh Let's i'm, say I'm actually three. thinking of an oboe teacher oh i know a composition teacher who charges that Maybe more, actually. Uh, yeah, he teaches. <laughs> actually, no, right. Uh, Can I say that? Uh, <laughs> you can't say that because you used that joke last season. Oh. Boom. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Finally, a legitimate comeback. Before we leave that, because I, I think something that could come up, an argument opposed to the idea that music is incredibly expensive to learn is there are lots of programs you can take where you can get free lessons and there were, and there's organizations out there doing good work mm-hmm. and that they're, they're like they have wonderful intentions and do amazing stuff right and they're and they're amazing do we and, know any names <laughs> uh, upbeat music oh thank you good i was good is a good one right and they they even give you free instruments do they pay for the instruments? Do they give it to you outright? I think, I think they're loaners. I think they loan them, yeah. If, if we're wrong about that, we apologize. And if someone who knows sends in a correction, we'll amend that. It's awesome. But how many programs are there? How many kids does it apply to? How many parents have the wherewithal to seek them out? And also... Or just like the sheer like free mental space to do that just because yeah, if you're in, if you're time. on hard times or just like need to do like if you work really hard it's exhausting yeah. you might see the more immediate sources of enrichment for your kids such as you know just being there and like doing things with them in the moment as a much more valuable use of your resources than finding a music instructor or something like that, of course. which is totally reasonable in those situations. You know, there, there was a study done in the UK that said kids who were born to parents who went to college, half of those kids end up studying music. Oh, oh, not in college. <clears throat> not in college. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was like, like Jesus Christ. If, if you, if you no wonder to... it's so hard to get commissioned. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Parents who went to college, uh, half of their kids study music. Parents who only graduated high school, only 20% of those kids study music. Wow. That's a huge gap. The other thing that that study found was similar (laughs) statistics with income. Families from lower socioeconomic backgrounds earning less than 28,000 pounds are half as likely to have children learning instruments than family who earn at least 48,000. So that's like how much real money every year? <laughs> yeah, in in American Jesus money, that's like I I don't I don't, I don't know. It's like it's like thirty thousand dollars. It's not that or far. twenty twenty. It's not actually 000. that far off anymore. I mean, it's uh, illegitimate because it's foreign, but still. Do you have the <laughs> citation for that the study? Yeah, I do. But we don't have to read it on the air. We'll provide it maybe in the show notes. Yeah, but the point is that those programs. I can't say what number of kids those programs apply to, but it's low, 
and compared to the overall number of students or I shouldn't just kids who can't access that kind of knowledge and input from other sources. Right. What is the bar for staying in a program like that? Because if oh, you're in a, if you're in a free program, how many chances do you get to be a shitty annoying kid? I know that if if, if there's if 80,000 kids who want to get in and they have spots for you know 200 and you spray someone with glitter. Right. Exactly. It's like do you guys know about um the Excelsior program here in New York? I've I heard I of believe it. I've heard of it. I don't know what it is It's though. free college for New York City residents. Maybe just New- oh. I'm, I'm not sure if it's New York City or New York state it's free access to the cuny and i think suny system Mm -hmm. but then you do some research and you find that it only applies to two percent of students because the bar is so so high unless you're you know in the top two percent of underprivileged students who can balance all of their hardships and get straight a's you're fucked so you either have to have money or be exceptionally brilliant so you have to be just not well off enough, but so well off in other aspects of your being that you happen to fall into the crosshairs of this small program. Right. And that's what politicians mean when they say they want everyone to have access to something. I mean, everyone has access to the Excelsior program, but for whom it's actually achievable, Hmm. very few. Hmm. What was my next question? Oh, we're still in the questions. This is great. Yeah, I just have 60 or 70 more questions. We should just Uh, call this one a few questions about musical privilege. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) If you get past all that and you're in whatever tiny percentage of people who actually study music and excel at it and can maybe go into college, how much does college cost? I have some interesting This is one thing I wanted to bring up. Okay, ask us each the question and then I'll... They're not, they're not... Oh, this one wasn't a question. I just wrote college. Oh. What were you going to say? I was going to say something interesting I actually found. I mean, this is a dumb example, so maybe we'll cut it because, you know, like... So this is dumb because it's a case study and, it, you know, it's just my experience, so it probably doesn't apply the same, but... It's anecdotal. It's anecdotal. That's a much more succinct way to put it, which shows how good my education is. Spencer's the one with the words. Um, Well, I know how to fucking read, but... (laughs) (laughs) It got me back. (laughs) I did my undergrad at a university and studied music technology there and therefore was just paying the standard rates for the university. There are some other circumstances at play, but this, the tuition at that school was much, much higher than when I went on to do grad studies at a conservatory. <clears throat> and, you know, the, the conservatory had some financial aid, but and it, it, you know, varies on kind of who gets what, but the overall tuition number was lower i mean new jersey where i went did my undergrad it does have as a state fairly high tuition rates and i know nyu another school that uh you know some of us have gone to what <laughs> you nyu has super high tuition right oh my it's god the highest in the country one of not I, it's actually it's not the highest in the country i think it's is it the did they hit second. 70 yet no i 70 what thousand dollars a year it very well could have Including room and board for an undergrad. I, I want to say that I think it's actually the yeah. second. I think one finally did <clears throat> bypass oh, NYU, it like but it's Providence still college or something like something that random. But it's like, uh, well, I know, sorry, I know. I'm talking out of my ass. NYU was, I think, is is either the most or second most. It's, it's up there. A lot of times, large universities can cost more than conservatories. However, what's interesting is since I found myself in that conservatory setting. Much to my surprise, given the rest of my background, 
there is a much, much higher uh, socioeconomic level. I'm not making sense. A much yeah, sure. Yeah, did, that, did that sentence make sense? Oh, definitely. But and that has to yeah. do with who can afford the lessons with the teachers who have the connections to get you in there. Right. Not and saying that any particular <clears throat> schools with starting with J do that. I'm talking about conservatories in general and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know who I'm talking to, Jehoshaphat Conservatory. <laughs> <laughs> because music is a really unique subject in that it's something that requires years of training before you start your collegiate training. Whereas anything else, you... You're allowed to start on day one of freshman year. You can even start like in your sophomore year. Mm-hmm. But oh. if you go to a conservatory... You've probably been doing that thing at an extremely high level for like 10 years. That's one thing I do have to say. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. But Shout out to my alma mater, Stevens Institute of Technology. They run a music program where you don't have to have done that before. There are people who start because they are simply interested in making music a huge part of what they do, even though like there's people who start that program and can't read music or only... Or can't they can, but they can't spell chords. But the way that's structured, they get everybody up to a professional level by the time they're they're done. You know, it's, amazing. it's an impressive curriculum. But that's mm-hmm. how they do it, as opposed to, which I think is an excellent solution to some of these socioeconomic disadvantages that certain people face. It's, yeah. it's, it was a huge part mm. of my own modicum of success in the world because I was one of those people who had a very weird training background going into it. Right. It's it's. It's tough when you didn't have that traditional, you know, start piano at six, take 11 years of serious piano lessons from some, you know, Russian teacher who beats you mm-hmm. and, uh, <laughs> with love. And uh, I think that's what the word was. <laughs> I had I had the same I had the same thing up. I mean, up until I was 17, most of my musical education was playing along with Blink-182 cds mm, that's good but uh their drummer is incredible drummer so I, you're not a real musician i saw them live <laughs> and the drummer oh drums. my god <laughs> <laughs> who yeah what's his name trey travis trey barker oh, oh no. travis barker trey cool from green day so good. that's what i was thinking he looks like ted cruz <laughs> he does oh my god and same initials and have you ever seen them in the same place uh-huh. at once isn't that like a conspiracy <laughs> theory not. yeah super silly what were we saying college is a scam <laughs> abolish them that is the official opinion of this podcast i was saying that uh conservatory was oddly cheaper in a way but in other ways the way you get there is so off in most cases is so much more expensive it seems from people i've talked to that the vast majority study with a very prominent or acclaimed teacher from a very early age through college and often attend a pre-college program at the conservatory of their parents choosing to <clears throat> kind of ingratiate themselves to the faculty there. And then, Oh, we should do an episode on pre-college. Ooh, let's my, my own experience at, at the new school for jazz, which I mean, when I started there, I think it was 16,000 a semester. I mean, it goes up, I think, which that's modest for a college nowadays. Too. Yeah. And that it goes up like 5%. A year or a semester or what whatever if it went down five percent over the course of your college career it would be insane 
I remember at a certain point, I mean, I stopped getting scholarship. There are a lot of people there who don't get any scholarship. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, you know, I mean, singers, I think, hardly get anything. I mean, it goes by the rarity of your instrument. Like trombonists and bassists get money. But drummers, guitarists, singers, there were like 50 drummers. The program was only 250 people. So the amount of scholarship I did get was great comparatively. At a certain point, it wasn't enough. And I ran out of loan money. You can hit your loan limit. I did not know. Oh, I didn't either. I <laughs> yeah. thought that you got... Oh, Plus wow. you have to apply for non-government loans, basically, at that point. I, I just ran out in general. I came 9,000 short in my last semester, and I was talking to... I think that was... Her title was, I guess she was dean of the jazz school. Her name was Terry Lucas. I'm, compl- I'm complaining to her, trying to appeal to her that I'm 9,000 short, but I sure would like this degree that I've spent three and a half years working for and have already paid like $150,000 for. And she said, yeah, you know, it's tough. I really hope you can, uh, you know, continue here. What? My, you know, my grandparents have money and they wrote a check. But I think that was the first time I ever thought, wow, you know, I'm I'm, I'm yeah, pretty that's... lucky that that happened because I know other people who were short and they were just like, oh, I guess I'm done here. Wow. I mean, that's... Um, <laughs> and, uh, that is messy. <clears throat> I guess so you mark this up as a loss. <clears throat> yeah. I guess that was a bath with drumsticks in it. <laughs> <laughs> but even to get to that point, you have to have so much money. Well, let's get let's backtrack from the college experience a bit because I did you have other questions for us? No. I mean, going over everything we've gone through, it's pretty clear that you need to have money to do this, to be in music. Or you need either like some kind of huge amount of some lucky circumstance. Yeah, some incredibly lucky lucky circumstance, Mm -hmm. which I believe, and I'm probably speaking a little bit out of turn, but I think that's basically the case for the three of us. I don't know entirely what both of your family backgrounds are like, but like, it was, at least on my part, like a lot of circumstantial things lining up just the right way and not even striving for it in that way. It was just like realizing on the other side of something like, wow, if someone ha- if I literally had been there on a if X thing had happened on a day later or a day earlier or like said something a slightly different way to somebody, I, w- I you know, would be doing some entirely different job. Wouldn't even be close to here. Yeah, we had parents who were. Oh, you. You, what, you want me to say something? I was just realizing. Oh, I'm li- I'm I'm listening. I'm, abs- I'm absorbing. Uh, I thought I was but, speaking out of turn. No, no, you're not. I, no, I will say I was. I'm very. I definitely am very fortunate that uh, my parents were able to to assist fully for my for my undergrad and mm. and then you know masters was loans which still paying off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I finished paying off but, grad school last month. Whoa. That's amazing. Good for you, dude. Thanks. But still, but it still, it still yeah. took me years to pay off the cheapest school in New York city. I mean, I got to study with Del Tradici and I, I, I had some good teachers there, but the program, uh, in general, especially for the undergrads was totally bankrupt Whoa. I was going to say not financially, but also financially. (laughs) (laughs) You meant morally, but also financially. Yeah. In all the ways you can be. And those kids 
and this is the case obviously with a lot of a lot of music programs probably a lot of programs in general they're doling out degrees to people who probably shouldn't have them they're selling them a, a bill of, a bill of goods that don't have much purchase in the real world because now you have people with music degrees who don't really understand the fundamentals of music how do you mean that mm. in a general sense so that you're not bashing anybody or any school or anything we know how difficult it is to have a career in music even in new york when you go to a really named school it's still hard i thought the interesting thing that jason eckhart said in the interview last year like half of his friends from columbia who got doctorates in composition from columbia are not in music anymore to go to the absolute highest level of music well, well, at least in education, Columbia, the highest level. <laughs> oh, is it? I'm just saying. You know, oh, like, I'm so sorry. The Juilliard. Yeah. Oh, I have to be nice though because they gave us money. <laughs> they might be the snootiest. I don't know. I'm I'm teasing. I'm teasing. Thank you, I'm teasing. Juilliard, for all of. No, the they're money. mostly very nice people, except the ones who aren't. But that's everywhere. So. Yeah. Yeah. But to get to that level and then quit music. But so do you know what why? Are, the, what was the quit? Just for different circumstances, or was there like it's an? It's just. Ad- it's it's too hard to make a living that's all it is when when you're when you're operating at that level so if if you get a bachelor's in music and the requirements aren't really that great and you can't necessarily compete at a professional level what what do you do now you have a flute degree and no one ever told you in that program that you're not even really playing at a college level which were people at city college yeah maybe this just comes off as well no what you're i think what you're saying is if the program isn't one that ensures that you're at a college graduate level of playing at the end of it and doesn't also in that curriculum provide you with tools that can give you a career of some sort in music which is what you're really signing up for in a general music major in a university setting. Let's say it's either music business or some kind of pre-law requirements that can help you do copyright things or give you some sort of MBA leg up to do things on that side or administrative things, things that can provide you with an avenue towards a career in the music field. And you're simply giving them a lackluster set of lessons, then yeah, you are setting someone up for a waste of their time and money. Yeah, we'll cut out everything I said and just put that in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you were going to make a point. Hmm. And we'll cut it out anyway and just say it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what was my point? Oh, I, I'm, sorry, I, I'm, I'm so obnoxious. You made a very interesting point that I hadn't really thought about, at least from that perspective, and that the process of getting into a music school being so challenging, ensuring that the level of proficiency of the student is going to most likely lead to a successful career. I guess I've always just thought about it as it's just so competitive. That's just how it is. But I guess I just hadn't thought about that perspective. Let's say you go to the university of Nick and Tony's upstairs college of music. Yeah. No, not even music school. It's the, the the satellite school, just Nick and Tony's, uh, Nick and Tony's college, college, the Shanghai campus. And, (laughs) And if you're studying Western Lit, at the very end of that degree, even if you are not a star student in that small program, you still have a college degree and people are going to see that you have that college degree. And there were no 
illusions about you taking your Western lit knowledge on tour or anything like that. And that was the only way you could make a career using those tools. Mm. But in terms of music, it's a little bit different. And of course, having a college degree in something, even music will, you know, open up doors to you Mm -hmm. in terms of jobs you can get. It's just that you've been told implicitly in that program that your career will would have been centered around your studies. And in fact, they oftentimes won't. Right. Back to the core topic. Good tangent. Mm -hmm. No, that was a great tangent. But what I wanted to go into is the institutional racism that creates even higher barriers of entry for minorities, people of color. Uh, I can't really say... Diversity issues in the field make things even harder for... Yeah, like for different groups of people. I mean, we've sort of talked about things like that in the past. Like we had one of our guests come on and talk about how someone was looking at their music for the first time. And instead of engaging with the musical content, chose to talk with them about why their program notes were in their native language. Yeah, that's no, that's really interesting. And 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 there's just different ways that people's work is approached, which is a problem academically speaking, not just artistically speaking, it, that specifically was in a lesson. And, right. they, and their music were treated differently because of their background. Right. And when you have a specific background, I think a lot of people don't realize that they, they make that their their thing or they judge people by that immediately that is, identifiable that is, quality. That thing is made their thing. That thing is made their thing is what I mean yes. to say. In researching for this episode, I've read so many accounts of people who are basically told, if you're an artist who is black, you are a black artist. And those are the grants you need to go for. You're not allowed to just, you happen to be black. Like, wh- why, why you is You can't your... just be an artist. <laughs> right. Why, no. why, why don't you include African themes in your music? <laughs> like, uh... Liggety did it. <laughs> yeah. you're Paul less, Simon did you're it. You're less black than Liggety. <laughs> Which is really not black. Um... <laughs> no but you know what probably no field exemplifies this better than comedy if you if you are latino in comedy you have to do latino jokes or or at least that's the presumption (laughs) that is the presumption Um, to be clear every anytime we're making an opinion or 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 making a statement like that we are saying the product the presumption of idiots at large in in any field is that what we know there there is a little bit there's a, a link here that circles back to something I was thinking about earlier and wanted to talk about in terms of specifically education-based thing. Mm-hmm. One major issue and disadvantage and source of inequality in pursuing musical and artistic goals in our current landscape is the complete disparity in education of all sorts at an early age very notably with music and the arts and things that are thought of as like extracurriculars or whatever because of how disparate things are in local public school systems and especially in music as you were saying to really make a go of things you very often have to start from a very young age and if you if you Mm -hmm. don't if you don't start seriously at a young age you have to really work And it puts you at a disadvantage, as we've kind of all discussed. You know, one thing I noticed once I was introduced to a lot of people who 
where composers in the conservatory system is a lot of them had been not only practicing music from a young age, but composing and being instructed in composition from a young age. And I mean, when I say young, I mean like 12 year old taking composition lessons with thorough music teachers. That's insane. And it wasn't necessarily that of course had to do with extra academic opportunity to do with family and those kinds of things and, and whatever. But within schools, like, it's so different. People, there isn't even a system in place where people all get the, you know, the stereotypical recorder lessons in fourth grade stuff no. anymore, which already were garbage. It's so different. Someone who grows up, hell, someone who grows up in most parts of New York aren't going to have exposure to not only music, musical training and music lessons, but music education of any sort music appreciation anything like that <clears throat> depending on just where you're born and therefore what public high school and grade school you're likely to go to your means of access to musical training artistic training drama anything outside of the core education stem field which is it's good that people are offered those but like we need people to do all kinds of things it's not just the difference between going to public school and going to private school. If you go to a public school in a wealthy county in California, yeah, you're probably going to have access to any musical training your heart desires. Maybe that's not entirely true, but you'll certainly have a lot more access than somebody who goes to a public school in a rural like county Camden. in Alabama or Camden, yeah. New Jersey or totally uh, forsaken towns like like those. We've talked about this a little bit in the past is a lot of times people take initiative to try and resolve problems in access to becoming a musician or even just enjoying music and understanding that classical music is a part of culture and the world and bringing in new listeners and new players. And they do that by loaning out instruments to young students or by subsidizing field trips for schools and these kinds of things or offering help with tuition to programs of various sorts. But part of the problem is simply the different kinds of access people have to any sort of resources just based on where they are born in the country. Mm -hmm. That's part of why the issues not only stretch across income disparity but also regional differences racial background you know every all kinds of any thing that can differentiate you from another human being is some factor that seems to work itself into your ability to make a go at being in a, a given field but it all a lot of times comes down to where you're from michael here for this episode I had the honor of sitting down with composer Susanna Hancock. In addition to her music crafting, Susanna is an accomplished bassoonist and has played with several music festivals. She is also a brilliant photographer. But what really makes me stand Susanna, outside of her compositions, is her artistic-slash-entrepreneurial endeavor, Terrar New Music. If you like music and you like food and craft beer, you definitely need to hustle to Tampa for their next event. We discussed this and more during our interview. And with that, segue. Oh, hi. Hey, how are you? <laughs> good, how are you? Pretty good. How about you? I haven't talked to you in a... Good. I mean, I don't feel like I've talked to you... Talked, talked to you... Right? I years. think I saw you in passing <laughs> at the last Kinds of Kings concert. Um, 
That was a good concert, by the way. Woo. Oh, yeah. It was so much fun because I hadn't been back up to New York City for two years since I left after graduating. That's awesome. Was New York exactly the way you remembered it? No, it was like smellier and like more stressful. <laughs> so maybe it, it got worse. <laughs> maybe it was because I was running on like four hours of sleep because I'm the kind of person that waits until like midnight and to start packing. And then, you know, my flight leaves oh, at I, 6 a.m. And I, I was empathized 100%. Oh, yeah. I just remember being on the shuttle bus from the airport to the subway and being like, oh my God, did I just like trick myself for the two years that I lived in New York City into thinking that it wasn't so bad? <laughs> now, you like, let me think, Tampa. Have Did you, did you, are you from Tampa? Or like, are you from Florida originally? I am a Florida native, but I grew up in Titusville, which is on the East Coast. And it's right next to the Kennedy Space Center. So I think oh, I nice. actually lived in the closest neighborhood to the Kennedy Space Center, if that makes okay. sense. Even though it was still yeah. like 20 miles away or something like that. Yeah. No, no, no. I was going to say, the only thing was... Um, at any given time of day or night, the rocket or spaceship or whatever could come back in to the atmosphere and it would create a sonic boon. And I would be like, oh, oh. my God, like the rapture is happening right now and I need to <laughs> repent for my sins. <laughs> it's happening. Yes. Oh, that's scary. Like in the middle of the night, because I would probably like wet myself. Like yes. if I just woke up and it was like. I was like, like oh my God, it's, it's North Korea or it's the rapture or. So many things. Like our house is like exploding. I don't know. And then you'd be yeah, like, oh, no. yeah, we live in, you know, Titusville, Florida next to the Kennedy Space Center. No, wait. So you you lived in Titusville. Now, did you so you lived there before moving to New York? Or did you go to school? I stayed in Florida for my undergrad. So I actually did my undergrad at the school that I'm teaching at now. I did my bachelor's at the University of South Florida. Then I did my master's at NYU. And then I eventually came back to teach at USF. Yeah. I, so then when you, so you did, yeah, so you did the master's and yes. that's actually how I met you. Yes. And then I feel like our, our, our friendship is solidified over hot pot, which I feel like many friendships probably are. Yes. But I feel like the very first time I met you was in the compose. Well, not the first time. I feel like we had like the composer mixers and things, but I feel mm -hmm. like when we got to work together, at least in any type of capacity was through the NYU composers ensemble. Yes. Uh, which I I think still, we did a couple semesters yeah. together, didn't we? We did. But I feel like that was the first time we like maybe talked extensively was through that class. I yes. think. Unless I'm remembering incorrectly. But I feel like, yeah, because you you were a year, you started a year th during my second year. So I think we had a year overlap. So, and I'm trying to think. So I did. Yeah. And then we were in, I think we were in the composer's ensemble every some, well, I, for at least when I was there, I don't know. Did you stay in it when after uh, I graduated? Were you still in it the, like your last year? I, th I think I did. I did at least three semesters, but I think four. Grad school's a blur. Yes. And like not even like a, like a college, like, man, I was having so much fun. It's like, oh, I'm so stressed. It's like I had to write 10,000 pieces in 17 yeah. days is what it felt like. That sounds like exactly accurate. Of what it was, actually, just like, doing, like writing all this music, which is kind of cool because I feel like it was really good for like forcing you to have a big output within mm. like the space of like 10 minutes. But it also made me nauseous. The, so the first time I heard you in terms of like your music and a composer and I uh, and, and correct me if I'm remembering the name wrong, but it was Chimera. 
Chimera. The Chimera. one was it where me, Brendan, Zach, and Sebastian were playing like a quartet with indeterminate yes. notation. Yes. Because I was remembering that when I was listening to like some of your newer work. Blossom and Furl. Mm, that was yeah. the one that I seemed that I was listening like, oh, this is giving me a lot of Chimera vibes. Chimera, Chimera. Yes. We're going to pretend like every time I say it, it's right. Yes, and it is. It's, even I mean, if I say it differently. It's a little uh, subjective with the pronunciation. As long as you don't say terror, that's good. I don't. I don't. I don't. I at least got it to sound somewhat French. But uh, but no, I was listening to Blossom and Fro, and it kind of had the same similar concept of evolving over the course of time for the piece. Mm-hmm. That piece was also on one of the ter- terroir concerts, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. Yes. But was my listening skills on point or were they totally off base? Oh, yeah, I think so. Um, <laughs> I think, for the record, I think there is a recording of Chimera on YouTube from... Did you ever go to that basement concert oh. at Zach's house? Ooh, I think okay, it's I'm on YouTube. It it's not the best recording of the piece. And I hope I'm not the only one that still has like... 40 gigabytes of files from Composers Ensemble that they haven't like actually mixed and mastered yet. So I need to get on that and actually release like a definitive recording of Chimera. So that was a little more of my like angsty, unrefined phase, maybe. Even though I feel like my music is angsty in different ways. But I was like clutching on to indeterminate notation, which I think was a coping mechanism that I used a lot in undergrad to avoid making concrete musical decisions. And not Ooh. that I don't like indeterminate notation or graphic notation. I think it's great mm-hmm. and it has its purpose in the world. But I think I was still clutching on to this idea of like, oh, if I procrastinate and I, you know, am shit out of luck as I'm composing, maybe I can use box notation and mm-hmm. do these ideas that I've been trying to get out in this particular way. And I think the final result for the piece was good and it was like what I wanted. But I think I probably also could have written that piece in standard notation if I had started it earlier. (laughs) Um, I was just going to talk about maybe like your comment about the continuous form of my pieces, which I think is a definite recurring theme. I don't remember the last time that I wrote something in sonata form or in like any kind of traditional form in a sense. I feel like my pieces um, on the micro level blend from one section into another seamlessly, or that's what I try to do. And then on the macro level, it's usually kind of hard to delineate what section is what, um, because I just want it all to kind of seamlessly run into each other. And a lot of people have kind of made comments like in recording sessions or in a rehearsal setting, like, where do we start? Because like, you're, you know, you set everything up so delicately that like, it has to start at the beginning and it has to end at the ending. Mm -hmm. I think it's a great word to put it like delicately, because I feel like it's especially when I was listening to Blossom and Furl, the impression I got was I loved, I love when pieces take very uh, simple ingredients. Like, you know, it's two guitars, Mm -hmm. you know, you're listening to something more complex than just two guitars playing, but it's, it's kind of hard to pin down. And I got that sense, like over the course of that piece, that it was like this, like kind of unfurling of, of the musical material over time. I was like, Oh yeah, this definitely reminded me of, of Chimera. But do you, do you find that that's what you, do you gravitate to that, typically because that's what you feel is just your general approach to writing a piece? Because I feel like there are other pieces that were not exactly like that. Well, I've always noticed that I take inspiration or meaning from pretty much anything that is non-musical in order to motivate me musically, if that makes sense. 
So like Blossom and Furl, I started from like a visual standpoint and the piece was actually written for a film score. And the idea was that I was going to write the piece first and then a film was going to be made, like a short film was going to be made to the piece, which never ended up happening. So I just have this piece that I still have like this very strong visual representation of the time lapses of like blooming and decaying flowers for. And that's kind of how I modeled like the piece and there's certain time signature changes and the harmonic material follows a certain push and pull and slow unfolding of material over time. That's really interesting to me because listening to it, you know, I don't feel like you're, you know, you miss anything for the piece or that you don't understand or can't appreciate the piece. Do you, is that how you feel like you all, when you, you always listen to it, you, you have that connection with the visuals or have you kind of tried to disconnect the two? Kind of. I think I don't really have synesthesia, but I think I learn and I process information very um, visually, especially because I like dabble in photography and stuff like that. Um, but there's also been occasions where I just try to take like an abstract scientific concept or in some of the music that I'm writing now or about to write, it's more about like my personal experience of race and identity and things like that. And mm-hmm. I always think it's interesting for me, or maybe more fulfilling, I guess is a better word, to give myself these parameters and like build a box or a framework for me to work within. And I think, how can I write music that fulfills my artistic voice? And I feel like comments on whatever this topic is in such a way that the listener can also understand what I'm saying. For example, not to poo-poo on it, but 12-tone music is a system and there's a gradual process there. But even as someone who has been steeped in this Western classical tradition, most of the time it's very hard for me to follow along in the process Mm -hmm. of the transformations and things like that. Whereas with something like minimalism, I think the process is something that a very trained musician can understand and also that your audience member can understand almost immediately. Mm -hmm. And so that's more what I'm leaning towards is what kind of musical process, whether that's rhythmic, pitch-related, timbral, can I do to create the effect that I'm experiencing with this topic or this visual in such a way that the listener is also going to almost immediately understand. So do you feel that the audience or the perception of the piece is very much a part of the piece itself? That focus of how is it going to be perceived does shape the music? I think it does, but I also, I don't think I've ever compromised my artistic sensibility or anything because I'm like, oh, well, my grandma won't like it when I play it for her. Like I'm Mm. writing the piece in the way that I want to write the piece, but I'm also trying to figure out a process that I think makes sense for almost anybody to understand with the piece. Like with Blossom and Furl, there's a push and pull of the material, and sometimes they're playing the same thing, sometimes they're not. The guitars are also supposed to be antiphonally placed so that you get this almost like psychedelic effect of having like something super dissonant or like something that might be consonant by itself and consonant by itself, but when they're on opposite sides of the room and they're half step apart it's pretty dissonant and it's like a visceral experience when you're listening to the performance live. Oh, so I, did, I didn't realize there was a, a spatial element. That's, that's awesome. The other piece that I wanted to ask you about the limbic resonance. Oh yeah. was such a different experience, but it was almost like I could f- hear little microcosms of that 
concept throughout the limbic resonance piece where mm. you could kind of feel like something transforming, but the, it seemed like it was definitely more, I don't want to say segmented, but it wasn't so much one starting point and then ending at a different place. It almost had its own arcs and peaks. When you were writing limbic resonance, did you feel that because it was a bigger ensemble, you wanted to do a different approach or was this just something that naturally came out of the concept for the piece? Kind of naturally came out of the concept for the piece. And if I'm being completely transparent. Have you ever watched Sense8 on Netflix? I started, I, so I watched part of the first episode, but I never finished it, but I heard it's supposed to be really good. So I remember with this piece, it was part of like the class project to write for the NYU Contemporary Ensemble. And I was having like the hardest time just coming up with anything because I was like, well, I need something like I need some kind of like extra musical thing as a vantage point for which I'm going to like start this. So I ended up watching Sense8, as procrastinators do. They go to Netflix and drown their sorrows. And they kept on talking about this idea of limbic resonance. And I was like, I'm going to Google this, and I'm going to see what's up with that. So I thought it was kind of interesting how in, well, it's kind of like a complex idea, and I hate to deduct and deduce, but um, basically the idea that people close to each other will eventually start resonating the same not necessarily, you know, at pitches, but they start thinking mm-hmm. like each other and they um, work better together. I think um, this idea is kind of used with like sports teams or like performers. If you hang out together, the idea that you like form this indiscernible bond and you work better together. And I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, the idea that you could maybe take 10 performers and make them disparate at the beginning and then eventually turn them into this thing that vibrates together. It's almost kind of this, uh, not not collaboration, because I feel like it, this definitely seems like it goes much deeper and beyond collaboration, but more of a, um, not meld. I can't think of the word I'm trying to, but so do you think, is that a kind of a concept that you incorporated in the piece itself where the the performers were, were borrowing each other's, you know, musical material in some way, or is it more just the concept was kind of the, the impetus for the, the structure? I think it was mostly the larger concept. In a way, I think from start to finish, there's this idea that the performers are rhythmically disjunct. They're kind of working in like a hocket, but they use similar sounds um, with the clapping and then like the breath sounds on the wind instruments and then a similar sound like the violins are bowing or not violins. The strings are bowing on the sides of their instruments to get this very airy sound And then over the course of time, they just turn into these long sustained notes that even though it's not like everyone's playing a unison, they're like these big, tall chords, but everyone is sustaining these chords over this kind of rhythmic groove that's not a groove, but is a groove that the percussionist is playing. So if you were to look at the score of the piece, the time signature changes pretty much every bar. But I also wanted to create something that sounded like a groove that was not a groove, but is a groove, I guess. (laughs) But I do know I do like that. You definitely can hear that in the piece. I mean, like you, you can get a sense of something moving from this active to almost a little bit more static, but having this underlying, underlying content running throughout the piece. It was just it was a really it was really enjoyable to listen to. Oh, thank you. So we've referenced it a couple of times, but I definitely wanted to dive in. Terroir, new music. Yeah, I got it. There you go. Uh, <laughs> but when I saw that this was when you were first starting this out, I was like, this is brilliant. Uh, and again, this might be coming back to my bias towards like theater and just like 
the overall concept of a production having all these different elements to it. But I just love the concept of having this extra musical element to the the program. So that for anyone that doesn't know, Terroir New Music is a concert series, and correct me if I'm oversimplifying it, but it pairs new music with different foods and different drinks, and it's an overall dining slash artistic experience, and I just think that is so cool. And I'm just so sad that I'm not closer to Tampa to go to any of the concerts, but maybe maybe when I'm visiting my parents and you're having one at the same time. But what struck me about it is that it's just such a, a great example of composer entrepreneurship, which I feel like is one of the bigger qualities of our peers is that most people are not just a composer. Mm, I think that they also, they use composing or whatever it is, if it's performing or, you know, different artistic qualities to further enhance other projects. And it kind of all becomes one thing. And that's what I loved about this because I know that you also uh, are doing a lot of photography as well. Yes. So I just, I think that that's amazing. I think that's like such a key thing to be doing to not only keep your own individual artistic chops going, but also just to get involved and to be communing with other composers and other artists. So what what was the the impetus for starting the series? What what made you think to pair it with food? Well, if we start at the very top, <laughs> um my mom was a restaurateur uh as I was growing up. She only recently sold all of her restaurants because she was like, I'm sick of this. <laughs> but like I'm done. Yes. She was like, this is hard. This is a lot. My mom was a restaurateur Um, basically from the time that I was about five years old. I remember her opening her first restaurant around the time that I started kindergarten. And this recurring theme in my life has always been food and beverage. And I think my story is very similar to a lot of kids that grew up with immigrant parents is that um, how do you try to live the American dream? Um, Usually the number one route is to open a restaurant. So um, my mom opened her first Chinese restaurant. She opened several over the course of about maybe 15 years, 20 years. And something that she found was that she was very good at starting restaurants. So she would like open a restaurant and then sell it, like give this thing that was already up and running to other people. Oh, yeah. Like flipping it. Yeah, basically. She was like a flipper, but for restaurants. That's awesome. So this was always kind of a recurring thing. It used to be a great point of shame for me. I was like kind of embarrassed that my mom ran a restaurant and my parents weren't like NASA engineers like a lot of people's parents were in Titusville as I was growing up. And in retrospect, you know, I wasted 20 years of my life trying to avoid eating Chinese food and trying to like deny my Chinese culture. But anyway, that's another segment that maybe we'll do later. So when the time came and I was in college, I needed to support myself. I was like, well, I'll just work in restaurants because that's something that I've always done. I was like knee high to a grasshopper and I was like bringing drinks to people's tables in my mom's restaurant because Mm -hmm. I just wanted to be there and spend time with my mom. And she always had to be in the restaurant um, to, you know, run her baby or her other baby. One day when I was working at um, the Standard Grill, in uh, New York City. It's down by uh, the Heinlein. They were very good about giving us like extensive amounts of training. So I remember sitting in Wine 101 and our wine director talking about how Tewa was the way that he made sense of the world. And I was like, Tewa, 
what's tewa? Like, that's a cool word. What's this word? Yeah, what's this word? And he was like, you know, there's in every part of the world, there's basically wine or other types of spirits. And they're all different, even though they're similar. And you can taste the difference because of this idea of tewa, which is the complete natural environment in which a crop grows. So in Florida, why would... I don't know, oranges taste one way. And then in California, why would oranges taste another way? Or if you crack open a bottle of wine, why does it taste like green pepper or leather or whetstone or any of these Mm. things that we like to describe as tasting notes for things? And I was like, oh my gosh, that's so cool. And that's like the approach that I've always kind of thought about music is that, you know, everything is in context kind of. And I was like, what if I started this series that combined food and beverage and new music, like the two things that I love most in this world, or I'm, I don't know, most knowledgeable about in this world. And that was maybe at the end of my first year, beginning of my second year in my master's. But I always thought that it would have been very hard to start in New York City because of costs, because there's just so many concerts and events and things happening all the time. I didn't know if it would get the draw that it needed to in order Mm. to make it cost efficient, or at least, you know, not to lose like thousands of dollars. Mm. And I kind of slept on it for a while. I was like, well, I need to finish my degree and things like that. And then when I came back to Tampa, I was talking to Tyler at one point about my idea. And I was like, well, I don't know if I'm ready. He was like, what do you mean you're not ready? We're going to do it. We're just going to do it. I was like, no, (laughs) but we haven't made a logo. and We have to make a website. We have to do all these things. He was like, no, we are going to go home and we are going to hammer out a Facebook page today. And so we did. And we didn't really announce it for a while until we got more things in order, like our first event. But Mm. I just remember that he kind of like kicked me in the butt and made me start the thing that I wanted to do. And like all great things in life, you can't really wait until you're ready. You just kind of have to do them. I feel like I'm very much the same way, though, with you. Like, I'm always like, well, no, no, it has to be exactly right. But then a lot of the time, then it's just... I catch myself just waiting. So that's great. So you kind of, you, so you got, you got the nudge that you needed to start it. So what, what was your experience getting it off and running? Cause I remember it seems like from when I saw that it had just started to now, I mean, it seems like it's, it's come a, a long way. I was going through all the different events and you were partnering with different museums and different organizations and having like different breweries involved. So it seems like it's definitely taking off. Definitely seems to be getting uh, a lot of exposure when you first started out, I mean, was it that way immediately or did you run into some type of pitfalls or anything that like happens when, when trying to start these type of things? There's always like, it's always a mixed bag. I feel. Our first event was at this bar called C1949 Florida Beer Garden. And the premise of this place is that they basically stock all Florida beers, not a hundred percent Florida beers. They still have like Bud Light and Paps and things like that. But Tyler suggested that we go to C1949 because what better way to highlight the Tewa of Tampa than beer? Um, Tampa is one of like the beer capitals of the world now. And to just. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. I could give you like a whole list of breweries. Oh, my gosh. I'll sneak up some beer next time I'm in New York and my like checked luggage. Um, He suggested that we go to C1949 and. Again, I was like, well, we have to wait until we're ready. We need to like type up all this stuff and like bring our laptops and show them the website and stuff. And he was like, no, we're just going to go in there. We're going to get a beer. We're going to ask the bartender what's up. I was like, <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> oh, I know that sound. That's in my brain all the time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's me more often than not. So we went to the bar and Tyler's just like, hey, can we talk to somebody about doing an event here? And I think 
the manager was the one who came out, this very wonderful uh, woman named Emily. And she was totally open. She was like, what do you guys got for me? And we told her our idea to do a beer pairing concert with um, chamber music, local performers, living composers, and then have Florida beers paired with it. She's like, oh, yeah, that sounds great. But you know who you should really be talking to is our bartender, Savannah. And as it turns out, Savannah is a musician in her own right. And she marched drum corps for a couple summers. And she was a trumpet player. And she was like all ears. She was like, yeah, I want to do the pairings. I want to be involved in this. It's going to be great. And so luck would have it or fate or whatever you want to call it that we just stumbled in there and all the right people that needed to be there were there and it just Mm -hmm. happened. And again, Tyler kicked me in the pants when I wanted to like wait and get all of our ducks in a row. But it turns out that we didn't need to do that. I feel like we always assume that it's going to be much harder to pitch our concept to others because it's so personal. But just like the you mentioned with the, the manager, I think most people are just excited to hear about it and like, yeah, this sounds great. And then it's just a matter of like, like you said, just kind of diving in and doing it. So I, I definitely empathize because I'm the same way. I always am like, okay, we have to have like a new email account and we have to get a, the Google calendar set up. And it's always <laughs> like all these things. And it's just like, by the time it's all ready to go, it's like, oh, but we don't, it's not planned. We don't have anything planned. I have all the resources, <laughs> but like nothing's actually happened. Right. So. Just to touch on your point before we get too far, I think when you do something that is very authentic to yourself, it's very obvious to whoever you're telling it to. So because food and beverage is something that I always knew in my, you know, the past 20 years of my life and then new music that Tyler and I are both passionate about. And um, I mean, we're both foodies and we drink a lot of beer and that's kind of the other great love of ours in this life is just appreciating food and beverage to the fullest extent. And people can tell that like, this is something that you're knowledgeable in. This is something that you're passionate about and you're not pandering or maybe trying to like exploit their resources. Like you're not just trying to hop on the train of whatever else someone else is doing. People can tell the authenticity that I think that transfers over a lot to even just writing and composing or doing anything again, artistic, because I feel like if you're not being authentic, yeah, that's a great point. I feel like people can tell even in your music. So that from when you first started to now, has the concept changed or has it been able, has it kind of said like, or what are some new things that maybe you've started incorporating that were maybe more of a surprise along the way, or has it pretty much consistently stayed, you know, pretty much the concept that you envisioned originally? I think there's a lot that we'd like to do with Taywa, but we can't do with every single concert. So for instance, that first concert was all pieces that existed already. And I believe those were all Florida composers and all Florida beers. But we realized that we can't exclusively program Florida composers all of the time or, you know, Florida beers all of the time. Like there's going to be a finite end to which we end up using something that we've already used before or kind of homogenize what we're trying to do and we're trying to keep it fresh every time. And of Mm. course, there's always concerns about diversity and inclusion that we try to be very cognizant of. And I would love to continue bringing the music of composers that I love that are located in New York City or in Chicago or anything like that down here and hopefully Mm. eventually have, I don't know, satellite events from Tewa that we do in New York or anywhere else. So you're thinking like you want to see this kind of, you know, 
expand. So it's the concept itself is not even just tied to a specific location, but maybe highlighting different areas of the country or. Oh yeah. And that's uh, returning to authenticity. We don't just want to like post up shop and try to tell people what's what about where they live. If we're from Tampa or wherever else, I think it's very important that we forge relationships with the people that we're working with. So all of the places that we've done events with so far are places that we love and we frequent all the time. It's not just like we barged in the door at C1949 and we're like, hey, we're going to do an event here. And we were nice to them until we did the event. And then after that, we never saw them again. <laughs> so after our event, we did another event and we did another event. And we usually go there like once a week or once every two weeks because we just love hanging out in that spot. And it's very gratifying to know that like we did something with these people in our community and we've created this friendship and this level of trust so that we could do another event with them or that they can tell their friends in the food and beverage industry that they enjoyed working with us and we can see Tewa grow in a very organic way and not like a feigned or like ultra capitalist venture until we've like dominated every local restaurant mm -hmm. in Tampa Bay. <laughs> take over the entire music scene. <laughs> no. That's but that I think you make a really good point too when you mentioned about wanting the, you know, forming strong relationships with other composers and artists in different areas because I think that's it is a great point that you want it to be a continuing relationship so you can always go back and say hey, let's do this again or they can give you insights that maybe you didn't have about what might work in that specific area. But I mean, I think that seems like a great idea to have that spread out because it's almost like you're creating your own musical terroir where it's all these elements around the concert are what form it. So I think, yeah, I think you definitely would need authenticity to, to do that. But I mean, I, it sounds like it's on its way to doing that. And, and I wanted to ask a little bit about your experience in, it was the university of, I'm sorry, you already told me. and I University it. of South Florida. And then you, are now back there teaching at the same institution. What is that like? What is it like when you're, you know, kind of going back and you're experiencing something like that from the other side of the desk, I guess? Ooh, that's eye-opening. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's all kinds of things that you learn about the school and about the people in the school. Once you're on the other side, you see what's more difficult, what's easier. I have found, by and large, that certain faculty still see me as the undergraduate version of myself. And certain faculty see me as whatever they knew me as. So a lot of um, faculty, I think, knew me as a bassoonist and not as a composer. And it comes as a surprise to them that I'm doing so much in composition because they think I didn't even get a degree in composition. <laughs> Got it. So did you do... Oh, you did, so you did your undergraduate in bassoon performance? Oh, no. I did... Well, technically, I did two bachelors, even though it's one certificate. I did one in bassoon performance and one in acoustic and electronic composition. The reason why I was able to do that is because I knocked out all of my gen eds um, in uh, high school, and I got my associate's degree through dual enrollment. Um, oh, nice. Which was facilitated yeah. quite a bit because my dad worked at, um, the college, which I did dual enrollment at, and he always made sure that I was registered on time and picked the classes that mm -hmm. I needed to and stuff like that. It always is interesting going back and seeing people that knew you from like many phases ago, because, you know, it's, it's hard to fault them for only remembering you a certain way because they wouldn't have no other 
reference point, but at the same time, it's also, it feels like, well, I definitely have changed. So you should give (laughs) a little bit of leeway here to be flexible. I'm not that same person. So I can kind of see, but this seems like a much more. The underlying problem is usually a certain amount of sexism and ageism, and then maybe just sprinkled in like a little racism just for fun. (laughs) So a little dash, a little dash. Uh. Um, what's it called? Pinch, pinch of racism. But, um, I think these underlying problems of sexism and ageism are that it's very hard for some people to view females as composers still, or it's very hard for some people to view young people or females as, um, professors. And Mm -hmm. I still struggle to call myself a professor and I struggle to have other people address me as professor because of my age and because of the fact that I'm adjunct and not full-time and things like that. Sprinkle in some uh, imposter syndrome just to, you know, make it more spicy. Oh. I've had to learn to kind of demand respect every day from both my peers, my colleagues, and my students and mm. to tell myself that I belong there and therefore I do belong there. Well, that seems like it ties back into the the authenticity too. You know, when you're saying, "Hey, the, I, I'm being authentic. This is me." And if you're not, you know, the problem lies elsewhere. It's with you. If people are not understanding that, or they're still, I, the reason I bring this up, and we don't have to go down this 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 road, but I, I've I've noticed that you've some of your the posts that you've made too of like ex, you know ex, describe these different issues that you've been running into, and I'm just reading these. I'm like, man. Uh, and I just didn't know if there's anything that you wanted to talk about that related to the different issues that you've had or anything that you think is good for people to hear. Because New York is fairly, I feel like I kind of get a little spoiled in New York because I'm, I just feel like I'm just being myself. And then when I go back to Ohio, I'm still being myself. And I realized, oh, a lot of these people probably don't talk to a gay person on a daily basis. And now I feel different or I feel like an other back in my hometown where I don't feel that way in New York. Even voicing my concerns with my job specifically or with the broader landscape of academia is kind of seen as like deviant or subversive um, because it challenges the status quo of what academia is. And ironically, there's been too many times where me as an academic, um, I think I'm not sure that I want to stay in academia. I'm not sure that I even want to go back and get a doctoral degree because of the way that I've been treated as a faculty member, Mm. the way that I've seen students and faculty members be treated. And I'm not sure that academia is the end-all be-all for the artistic community. I still, Mm. I think I've arrived at the conclusion that the lifeblood of any artistic community is out there in the world. It's not in an ivory tower Mm. and nothing is going to change about the ivory tower. If we don't say anything about it, whether that's telling our administrators or telling our peers, it's kind of like that thing that people don't like to talk about like money with commissions because you don't want to like, I don't know, maybe have the ideas in your head shattered of like what you think you should be making or what you think this other person makes and whether or not there's, I don't know, some kind of competition or something like that. Yeah. But with academia, it's almost like you don't, people don't want to talk about, I don't know, like their course load or how they've been treated or just to verify whether or not what they're being offered is fair for whatever reason, which I think Mm -hmm. is kind of silly. I think 
what academia needs is transparency. And yeah. what academia needs is a breath of fresh air. New ideas, I thought, is what you know academia is supposed to be about. Um, innovation, not just in the subject matter, but in the way that we conduct ourselves as people. Academia should be the field where progress and new ideas are happening, but I feel like it's so counterintuitive that it gets solidified in this almost like fossil of what it means to be involved in like an academic environment. It's like, well, this is the way things are done. Mm. And I think that it seems like it's one of the slower areas to keep up with the world. And I think you made a very good point. And I think that I, it's so true is that I think that the art and the, all of that is happening outside of that. And I definitely don't think that school is needed. I feel like I've definitely kind of, even though I'm like, I, I do, I'm glad I did it. And I'm, you know, still debating about like a doctorate. I, I've, my perception of what it means to get a degree or to, to study music has changed. You know, I, I think that I was thinking of it too intrinsically linked where that's like what you have to do. You have to do that if you want to be a blank mm. and it's not, it's not true it's um, not. at all. And I think that hearing your input and your stories of what you experience is kind of opening that gate to like, yeah, we need to talk about this. Well, one of the first and still most jarring experiences that I had when I started teaching, I was maybe a month in and I was still very green and very timid. And I'm sure any students that I had at that moment in time can verify that I was like shaking as I was talking to them for the first half a semester. Um, but I remember being accosted by a graduate student in front of my very own office who kind of, I don't know, just accosted me and buried me with questions like, where did you get your degrees? How did you find this job? Who did you know? What? Are you a vocalist? Are you a pianist? If you're not a vocalist or pianist, you don't deserve this job. And I, I'm on to you. Yes. <gasps> I wish it was social, you know, acceptable in society to ca carry like a pie with you and you could pie people in the face. I'm serious. Like I've thought about so many times. I'm like, they need a pie like right in the face. Yes. Uh, that's so that's disrespectful on so many levels. It's disrespectful on a like student teacher level, but it's also disrespectful just on a person to person level. That's just. Uh. I think part of the dynamic was that this person was older than me and Oh, so they're like, yeah, perhaps. Yes. And from what I understood about the situation in retrospect was that they were starting their master's. So they wouldn't have been qualified to have my job anyway, but maybe they thought that it was a part of an assistantship or something like that. I just remember being just kind of frozen in my tracks. I think I answered certain questions like, where did you get your degree and things like that? But then kind of having a panic attack afterwards and wondering if I said something that I shouldn't have or if this is going to somehow be held against me, if mm -hmm. I even had like tough enough skin to be in academia in the first place. And that really wasn't the end of that. As it turns out, um, my legitimacy was called into question and I was asked to reapply for my job again. <laughs> and it was all very bizarre. Uh -huh. And other than the inconvenience of having to do that, I had to turn down a very exciting compositional opportunity, which I won't name mm -hmm. because I ended up not doing it and I still feel bad about backing out of it. I just remember kind of questioning my validity as an educator, my validity as a composer, because I had to turn 
that opportunity down. Mm-hmm. And that's probably the turning point for me in realizing that academia is kind of like a chessboard and it shouldn't be that there's always going to be people that try to engineer situations or think that they can play nepotism to their advantage, but it shouldn't be that way. And it doesn't need to be that way. It's yeah, it's like a game. I like how you put that. It's, it does seem like it's, you're playing the the game of how you advance in academia, which is so silly because that's supposed to be the, the experimental area. That's supposed to be where you're supposed to be able to try out things. And that's what also, not for me to go off on a little tangent, but I get annoyed because academia is supposed to also help you thrive through experience. So I think that of all places, you should be propped up to face challenges that you might not feel personally ready for when in most cases people are, but you know, like you're mentioning, like it's sometimes you question yourself, which I think, which everyone does. Mm. And that should be the area where, you know, you have the support and they're saying, yeah, you got this, you can do this instead of like making you further question yourself because of the silly politics and the, the bureaucracy. I'm sorry that you have to go through that. It's, it's very frustrating that that's a thing. It's kind of a catch 22 because I've had people who may or may not be well-intentioned say things like you should take it as a compliment that, People view you as a grad student still. It's like, maybe? I mean, Asian, no raisin. Yeah, it's like, but at the same time, like I don't want to have to do this every single week, have to correct someone that I'm actually faculty and not a student. Or, you know, all of these microaggressions eventually add up and they're very grating on your sense of self-worth. Yeah, I feel like it's almost kind of like not necessarily a backhanded compliment, but it's yeah, it's like it's they're trying to think of something that's well, the positive side is and it really isn't a positive side. It's just kind of like, oh, great. Like, okay, I look younger, but you should but you should be respected regardless. That's what is crazy to me about that that grad student story, because so you feel like the most the biggest things you've experienced have been like kind of like an, an ageism perspective you know that's really let me repeat let me repeat that do you feel that ageism has been one of the biggest challenges that you faced in terms of going back into teaching I think so and I've also had uh, colleagues tell me that I should be happy to have any job in academia and that on any given day there's 10 people waiting in line for my job so that I shouldn't complain (laughs) and I think that is somewhat of a veiled ageism and sexism and of course, we're always going to sprinkle in the racism because why not? And that's that's another thing where it's yeah, it's like you're if you're not playing the game the way they want, they could just replace you, and that's what drives me crazy because this is not uh, well, not that that should happen in like a, a Fortune 500 company, but I'm just it's where the bottom line is profits and people they do go through people like you know all the time. That's not academia. Academia is supposed to be a nurturing. <laughs> Sorry, I'm this gets me very yeah. I just feel bad that you are experiencing because I just, I know you're so talented and I know you have to be an amazing teacher. And I just feel like you and so many other people are in this same predicament. But the, th- the, 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 the silver lining is that you are, you know, being a faculty member, you're one of those people that can bring about the change from within. You can, like you said, talk about it and make it more transparent because eventually all of these people that are older, they're going to go away. They're going to retire. And if you're fostering this type of much more open and not sexist, not racist, not ageist environment with your students, I feel like that's what's really going to, that's what's going to matter in the long run. You're going to help teach those students how to to act and, and what academia can be. And just like, 
just push out this old stuffy, ridiculous notion of what it means to be in an academic institution. I mean, I'm not completely crapping on my experience as an educator or the institution that I work for, but mm-hmm. I think it's important to highlight certain injustices that have happened to me personally and that I see throughout academia as a whole, because like you said, if we don't say anything, how is it ever going to change? And I used to think that maybe I would, you know, just dissolve into the sunset and hide in a cave somewhere far away from academia. But at the same time, if I wasn't in academia, someone who wanted to play the game could be in academia. And then what changes? And it's not something Mm. that is going to be rectified with one person and it's not something that's going to be rectified with a hundred people. But if, you know, we have this whole shift as a generation of educators that will eventually occupy these spaces, I think that we're better off for it for kind of like bearing the brunt of the BS now so that educators one day or students one day have a much more nurturing environment. If you can make the change within, that's really going to to be the most impactful. It's just it's it's the uh, double edged sword where then you also have to be the person that deals with all the bullshit. Well, Susan, I just want to say that it's so exciting to to have met you from just in our early days of grad school, and then just to even though it's been kind of uh, from afar, just to see all the different things that you've been involved with and just how driven and passionate you are for not only your own music, but just for promoting others. I know you do a lot of work with kinds of Kings and that's another organization that we just also love a lot about because of of the the mission and, and what, what it does. So I think that you are definitely setting a great example for composers and what composers can do uh, with being more entrepreneurial minded. And then, yeah, also making these, these, small corrections over time in the teaching environment that I'm sure is going to add up to, you know, these, these bigger changes happening. And we just need everyone doing that just to, to help get us to a place where we can finally be in a much more welcoming and diverse and open, open place. So, uh, but I want to just thank you so much for taking the time to, to come on and, and not only talk about, uh, your work, but also like your experiences as, as being an artist. So thank you. Well, thank you for having me. Well, I look forward to the next terroir. That might have been the best one yet. Terroir New Music con- uh, uh, Concert Series when the next event is. And I'm going to try to see if I'm going to be in the area because I am going to probably be going down to Florida sometime this summer. So if you're having, do you have anything coming up that's that's going to be around that time in the summer? I, we don't really have anything set for the summer because it's kind of the time that everyone disperses and does their festivals and things like that. Probably something in the fall. Um, We'd also love to start setting up satellite concerts one of these days. Do you have anything like uh, composition-wise coming up that you want to plug before we go? Sure. Um, I should plug Kinds of Kings, but I'm not sure how much I can say about some of the projects that we have coming up. Ooh, the stuff that's like going to be awesome at Under Wraps. Those are always really exciting. Yes. Okay, how about I'll say this. Um, So with Kinds of Kings... I'm writing a piece for Noise Saxophone Quartet um, that some members of Kinds of Kings have already written for, and that will be performed as part of a residency 
at a certain New York venue that we cannot announce yet, <laughs> but it's going to be great. There's going to be a variety of concerts and some really cool things built into the residency that I hope you all look out nice. for. Um, we're writing some more stuff for the residency that is like super, super non-disclosure at this moment in time. <laughs> But the noise, I like it. It builds suspense. Yes, the noise uh, saxophone quartet uh, piece is definitely confirmed. All right. Well, thank you, thank you so 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 much. Um, I'm going to let you get back to playing with Peggy. Playing with Peggy. And I really want to go follow her Instagram immediately. You'll you probably see the the follow requests come through very soon. Yes. Actually, <laughs> Tyler locked me out of Peggy's Instagram. He always says that he forgot the password, and I'm like, but did you though? <laughs> No, you have to have access. Just just go in there and like reset it. I think he's got like else. an aesthetic going that I'm not, I can't do the oh, aesthetic or something. okay. <laughs> it's the right filters or something. Something like that. No, you just need to get in there. As long, if it's pug pictures, that's all that matters. Right. Care about aesthetic. I just want to see pugs. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much. And I will definitely be seeing you here this month. Yeah. Later on for your concert. All right. We will <laughs> right. get hot pot and yes. sweat in the dead heat of New York summer. Yes. Yes. I love it. All right. Take care. I'll talk to you awesome. soon. Well, that's a wrap for this episode. My sincere thanks to Susanna for taking the time to speak with me. Make sure to keep an eye on Terrar New Music for their upcoming events, as they are not to be missed. Remember to subscribe to Adagio for Things on iTunes and give us a rating and review. Also, head over to our Patreon page if you want to support the show in a more financial fashion. Until next time, we leave you with Susanna Hancock's piece, Platforms. <laughs>